Good morning. We're continuing a series called Uncut, where we're hearing the stories like the one Maddie just told that many of us heard growing up in our children's Bibles and uh, at our VBSs growing up, and, and telling the rest of the story that we found to be really a more hopeful story when we find how God has used people, sometimes in spite of the brokenness in their lives. Well, today's story is the story of Esther, and I would encourage you to open to the book of Esther. Uh, we'll flip a few other places, but it'd be good to be there as we, we get started. As I remember the story of Esther growing up, I remember thinking of Esther like a Disney character of some kind. She, somewhat like Cinderella, maybe, right? Cinderella was an orphan, like Esther, as we find out in the story. And through the story of Cinderella, she's orphaned, but she finds uh, this, this place and this, this character, this prince that takes her in, and they live happily ever after. And when you read the story of Esther, that's how I remember hearing it growing up. But when you look more closely at the story, you find out that there's a lot more depth, a lot of darkness in this story, that it's not so simplistic. And that's what we want to share today is the deeper story. In fact, the book of Esther was one of the books in the Bible that almost didn't make it into the canon. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is that the name God never shows up in the entire book of Esther. And you can imagine why that would cause trouble, because if this is a story of Scripture that's telling us the story of God, then why would you put a book in that doesn't have God's name in it? And I think there's a reason for that, so I'll come back to that a little bit later. But let's open uh, our our, our hearts this morning. Let's pray this morning that God would speak and and we'd be able to leave with a word of encouragement today. God, I, I ask today as we open the story of Esther that your heart would shine through for who you are and who you want, to, want us to be, who you're calling us to be. And God, some of us may feel a tug this morning towards certain actions that we need to live out that you're calling us to. And if that's true, God, would you put that prompting on our hearts today? But regardless of where we find ourselves, would we find hope in this story, God, just as you intended it? This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. The story of Esther begins with a 180-day festival. King Xerxes is the uh, king over Persia at the time. It's a, a country or an empire made up of 127 provinces from India uh, to Egypt. Today, it would span 22 countries that are modern countries. This is a huge empire. And, and so Xerxes is the king over this empire, and he wants to show the vast wealth of the kingdom, and he does that by throwing this huge party. Well, after that initial 180-day party, which you think would be enough, right, he throws a seven-day festival after that, showing off his gardens to many of the men who are part of the kingdom. And at this party, this seven-day festival that follows the 180 days, this is over a, a, a half a year now, six months, right, they had this party, and they'd had a lot to drink at this seven-day festival. In fact, it says in the text that when the king was in high spirits because of the wine, uh, let's pick up on the rest of the story there. In Esther chapter 1, we'll start reading in verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar, and Karkos, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious uh, and burned with anger. 
So we read this story, we pick it up, and we find uh, that there's this request that the king has to offer. We, he, he, she wants to, he wants his wife to come in and, and entertain the folks who are there. And while the English innocently translates that phrase uh, to bring him before Queen Vashti wearing her crown, it actually in the Hebrew is a little different. It says uh, that the, the queen would come in wearing nothing but her crown. So you can see the offense that Vashti takes to this and says, no, this is not what's going to happen. And when he asks for advice from his officials, the nobles of the empire, this is the response that's given. Let's keep reading in verse 16. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility, who've heard about the queen's conduct, will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, uh, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. She, uh, Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man uh, should be ruler over his household using his native tongue. So despite the darkness of this story in Esther that we find out about, there's a lightness to this story as well. In fact, this is supposed to be written as a comedy of sorts. Now, if you don't laugh this morning, I understand some things are lost in translation, but it starts here in these verses because it's funny. These eunuchs are telling the king, uh, king, would you stand up and be a man? That's supposed to be humorous. These guys are the ones to call him on that. And they're calling him saying, look, if you don't do this, all the rest of the women aren't going to know that we're in charge. This is a society where women were uh, to be owned by men. It's not the society we live in today, but this is what was found. So it would cause all kinds of discord for this to happen. And they're trying to put a stop to this, these eunuchs are. In verse 19, it's interesting, the language. It says there, let the king give uh, her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Now, what does better mean in that passage? More submissive? More obedient? It's interesting language there when it comes to better than she. Or drop down to verse 22 at the end. It says, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his household. Now that sounds a little bit familiar if you're paying attention to a story in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. The fall story at the very beginning. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And this is what we read in Genesis 3 in verse 16. Again, this is the, the fall and the consequences of that sin. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now let us hear these words in the context of this not being the way God wanted the world to be from the start. Not that there would be this power differential and there would be some ruling over others in an oppressive way, but what do we find when we come to the book of Esther? We find nobles who are trying to tell the king, if we get things out of order here and women aren't in their place, then we're going to have a problem on our hands, right? At least the husbands will. 
Well, as we read on, that's the way of pursuit of power goes, isn't it? That you can have any title or authority that you want in a position as a preacher, as someone in a business of sorts, and you can demand that authority all you want. But in reality, the person with power and influence isn't the one with a title all the time. It's usually the person who's leading well, who knows the people, who's a part of the people and leading them in the best way. So this book, Esther, isn't named King Xerxes' book. It's named Esther's book. Not the one with a title, but the one who has authority because of the way she interacts in the course of the story. So with Vashti gone, the king needs a new woman, a better woman, who he can, of course, rule over in certain ways. And this is often how the world works, and this is where Esther enters into the story. Now, I always imagined her as this princess, like I showed earlier, but that's not what this scene is. This isn't a scene from The Bachelor with a woman who willingly enters into a contest. This is a story of forced queenship. This is a story of of an orphan girl. Now, you saw the picture earlier. She was smiling in this wedding dress. I just have to picture this a little differently than that. Because she comes in with 12 months of beauty treatment and gets a night with the, queen, uh, with the king to be his forced partner in this situation. Not exactly an ideal situation. Who wants to sign up and be the king's new wife, the better woman he needs, right? But, so the story continues on, and these characters find their way. And it ultimately, ultimately, it takes the defiance of both Queen Esther and Queen Vashti to secure the freedom of God's people. It's these characters in the story that we're told to emulate that are the courageous ones. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So as the story continues on, we find two new characters. Their names are Haman and Mordecai. Haman is a high official uh, in in the empire, in in this kingdom. And Mordecai is Esther's older cousin. Because Esther was an orphan, we don't know the situation of why her parents died. It may have been in their transition from their homeland to the new land. We don't know what that is. But Mordecai, her cousin, takes her in, takes care of her. So he's an important character in the story. But there's this guy named Haman. And Haman wants all the authority because he's got the title. He's one of the king's high officials. And so every time he comes to the city gate, he expects for everyone to bow down to him, as you would with someone within a title. But there's this one guy named Mordecai who refuses to bow down every time that he comes to the city gate. And he's so upset about this that he tries to come up with some way that this can be fixed in some way. And so he decides, let's get rid of Haman, let's, or let's get rid of Mordecai, let's kill Mordecai. In fact, let's just get rid of the whole race of Jewish people because then it would be easier. So he goes to the king and he says, this is what I want to do. There are people who don't follow our customs. They're not like us. And they need to either be made to look like us or we need to just get rid of them. So the king agrees to set a law up where the Jews would be eradicated and done away with. Well, back in the story, Mordecai had told Esther not to reveal her identity, her racial background. And so the king doesn't know all this about her being a Jew. But now he signed into order this uh, order that, that Esther, the queen, along with her people, would be done away with. So in this season, there's a problem. How does Esther respond to the problem? Well, Mordecai says, it's time for you to tell the king who you are. It's time for you to request uh, our our pardon. And in Esther 4.14, we read this passage that we've often read for such a time as this, right? That Esther came, maybe you've come for such a time as this, but I want us to read verse 16 that follows up. This is Esther's response following the the verse that many of us have underlined in our Bibles. Again, Esther 4.16. Go, gather uh, together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. 
When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now this story reminds me of another story as well. A book that's written while the Jews are also in exile, away from their homeland. And both of these books are struggling with, what do we do when we don't have a temple that we get to worship God at? What do we do when God seems absent in the midst of our lives? What do we do when we're in enemy territory and they're leading us and in charge of us? So the book of Daniel is struggling with that same question. Many of you remember the VBS story about Daniel and the lion's den. And that comes through a similar mode as Esther's story. There's some that say, you know, if, if he's going to pray to your God, then we need to do away with these people if they're not going to pray to Nebuchadnezzar, the true God, and our gods. So there's an order put out that if anyone prays to a God other than, you know, we're not going to do prayers to the other gods. And Daniel decides he's going to continue with his ritual, and he's thrown into the lion's den and protected. But there's another story in the book of Daniel that has to do with three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember this story? They're supposed, when the music starts, to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is not something the Jewish people were able to do because they worshipped Yahweh. And do you remember the response that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had? It's in Daniel chapter 3. It sounds so familiar to Esther's response. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Sounds like a a word of confidence, right? But let's keep reading. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up here. I find that interesting, especially as we talked about faith and doubt last week. And here are these characters who are bold, courageous people who say God's going to protect us. But there's always this kind of line of thinking that says, but even if he doesn't, the call of us as the people of God is to be faithful to God. And here we see Esther saying a similar thing. If I perish, I perish. But this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to be courageous. And it seems that in a time and era where we might find these books to be helpful, a time of exile of sorts that we sense in our own nation and our own land, that maybe these books need to speak a word to us in the midst of the courage that needs to be shown. That we speak with boldness about who God is, but we know there's a chance he might not show up in ways we want him to. And our response needs to follow just along the lines of Esther and Daniel. That we're going to be people of courage, and if God doesn't choose to show up, then we will serve him only regardless. Amen? Well, the story continues on. For such a time as this is followed by, if I perish, I perish. Maybe you need to underline that verse 16 in Daniel 4, because it's a reminder, in Esther 4, it's a reminder to us. But the story continues on, and and Esther decides she's going to go in and ask the king to save her people. And as she goes in to do this, there's a question of if the king is going to extend his scepter or not. He might do with her like he did with Vashti and banish her. So Esther walks in, not knowing what the response is going to be. And the king says, Esther, I will give you whatever request you have, up to half of the kingdom. And I don't know if she just loses her courage in this moment to ask, but what she decides to say is, actually what I want to ask you is, would you come over for dinner tonight and bring Haman along with you? Which I think is hopeful for us. If we struggle with courage, maybe it's okay that it takes a couple times for us to speak the right word, right? But anyway, maybe it's just food that she knows she can speak to these guys through. But she gets them around the table. And so the king says again, hey, whatever you ask, Esther, ask it, and I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And you know what she says? She says, would you come back for dinner tomorrow night? And so they say, yeah, we'll come back again tomorrow night, another feast. Well, that night, some interesting things occur. 
Haman, for instance, he goes home and he's furious about this whole Mordecai thing and not bowing down like he should to someone with such a title and authority. And so he goes home and his gracious wife has an idea. Why don't we build a gallows? Not just a gallows that's tall enough to kill someone, a 75-foot tall gallows, a 50-cubit gallows. Why don't we build that just in case there's an opportunity to get Mordecai down the road? Well, that comes up and shows up later in the story. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that same night, here is uh, the, the king, King Xerxes. And King Xerxes is, is, is trying to get to sleep. And like you do, you might count sheep when you go to bed. But he decides, I'm going to read the annals uh, of my work as a king. <laughs> Bring me the book that tells me all the great stuff I've done, right? right? I mean, you've heard that song that talks about, you know, he's so, uh, she's so vain, he's so vain. Probably thought the song was about you, right? Well, this is... This book is actually about him, right? And that's what he does. He picks it up at night, trying to find some sleep, and he reads this story in the midst of that book that talks about an assassination attempt on his life that someone had saved him from. Mordecai, way back in the, in, in the past, he'd heard about an assassination attempt, told Esther about this, and Esther tells the king, and this spares the king's life. And so the king says, have we done anything to honor this guy, Mordecai? And they said, no, no, we haven't done anything. He says, let's figure it out. So the next morning he walks into the palace and Haman is there. And he says, Haman, there's this guy I want to honor. And Haman kind of, you know, perks up. Yeah, I know who you want to honor. And he says, what should we do for this guy that did this great thing for the king? And this is what it says in Esther chapter 6. This is Haman's response, an idea about what they should do to honor this man. Verse 7. So he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honor, right? Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And Haman steps aside waiting for his honor, right? And the king says, this is great. Would you be that noble who would lead Mordecai through the streets? Because I want to honor him. Tough moment, right? He has to suck up his pride. And I'm sure he's fuming this whole way. So he does that. And that night, it's time for the other banquet, the second night, right, with Esther, who's uh, honoring the, the king and Haman. And in the midst of that story, Esther finally gets the courage to ask the king, what I want to ask for is I'm about to be killed. And the king's shocked by this. She says, actually, it's a law that you've put in place. It wasn't your fault. There was this other guy that wanted me and my people dead. Would you do something to stop that? This is what Esther it says in, in, in chapter 7, verse 3. Then Queen, Queen Answer answered, this is her request. If, if I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? 
As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. Not exactly the story I remember at VBS. And eventually the king allows another edict where the Jews can protect themselves and in the end they're saved. There's a lot of things you can draw out of this story, but I want to go back to the question that I posed earlier to you. Where is God in the midst of all this? He's absent in the story, but where is God in the midst of all these things that are going on? His name's not there, but could you see him in the story? Maybe peeking out from uh, the sides of the page, kind of finding his way into the story? Well, it's interesting. Again, this is a book that's written while they're in exile. They're questioning, where is God in the midst of this? This is a question that often the people of God have asked when they've not been the center of power and God hadn't seemed to show up. Well, it's interesting, that question, where is God in this story? Because a, a detail you might not know is about Esther's name. I love this. Esther's name in the Hebrew comes from a root word. And do you know what that root word means? It means hidden. It's as if it's this reminder in the midst of the story that people ask, where is God in the midst of all this? That all you have to do is mouth the first words of the book, the book of Esther. And even in that moment, you've proclaimed something that's very important. There are times in our lives where it seems like God's absent, but there is a huge difference between saying that God is hidden and saying he's absent. And I think this is important for us as we walk through our journeys this week, wherever God might be taking us, we may may be asking the question, where is God in the midst of this? What's he up to? Is he even doing it? Is there a God? But I think it's important that even this book that never shares his name, all you have to do is open to the beginning of that book. And when it mentions the name Esther over and over again, it's a reminder to us that even in those moments, he seems most absent. He's hidden. He's there. And he's in the details of your story as well. I'm so glad they kept this book in the Bible, aren't you? Because if they had enough, we wouldn't have had this reminder that even when he seems most absent, God is here. So what about a takeaway this morning? Well, I want to talk for a moment about uh, a, a fact in this story that I didn't hear growing up. It's that Esther is an orphan. And I don't remember hearing that ever before. And when I thought about what an orphan would look like in our culture, in our time, we don't think about this often. We don't talk about this much at church, but this is a huge part of what the church is called to be, is to care for widows and orphans. Isn't that right? God talks about this a lot. So as I was thinking about who Esther would be in our world today, I came across this video, and I thought this might give us a picture of someone like that today. Let's roll that. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I didn't know my father. I was alone. Helpless. Helpless. I had no family. I didn't belong to anyone. To anyone. To anyone. I was an orphan. No one saw me. No one knew me. I was invisible. I was lost. I was lost. No one said, he's mine. She's mine. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I was hungry. Like all the food in the world couldn't fill me up. I was vulnerable. Unprotected. At risk. Cold. Tired. 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 
was found. But I was found. I was found. Someone stepped in. Someone saw me. I was sought. Pursued. Wanted. Known. I was an orphan. But now I belong. Now I belong. Now I belong. I'm embraced. A sister. A brother. I know my father. I know my father. I know my father. I was an orphan. But I am loved. Great cost. I am restored. I am restored. And for the first time, I know that I am valued, prized, forever. 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 I was an orphan. I was an orphan. I was an orphan. We're all orphans. So I care for orphans. So I care for orphans. I was an orphan. So I care for orphans. When I planned this series, I uh, planned this Sunday for Esther, not knowing what this Sunday was all over our country. Many churches are celebrating Orphan Sunday today. We want to do the same thing. We want to bring awareness to something we don't often talk about that's so important. That if there hadn't have been people around Esther to see what God could do through someone like that, uh, Mordecai wouldn't have raised her up. Mordecai's an important character in this story, even though the book's not named after him, because he cared for an orphan and brought out what God could do through that. Uh, the, one of the passages of Scripture that's so important when it comes to this is, is James 1, 27. If you want to know what pure religion is, James says it here. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This morning I want to share a story about somebody in our own church who's done something about this, who saw the call of Scripture and said, I can't just read about it. We've got to do something about this. So Kristen Mazza is going to come up in just a moment and share some of the story of Ebby House. Let you know how maybe you can be involved if God's tugging at your heart this morning. But let's show this video, and Matt and Kristen, you can come on up. I grew up in a home that provided foster care for many children over the years of my childhood. It was them and our work with different case managers that led me to always want to get into social work, be a social worker. So I went back to TWU and had two long years of school and graduated in May with a social work degree. And so we spent some time praying and praying that God would be obvious in the doors that I needed to step through. Um, he opened a pretty big one, pretty obvious one for me at Juliet Fowler Communities. I took the leap of faith. I stepped through because it was so obviously um, an open door and sent by God. Juliet Fowler Communities has been around in East Dallas for almost 125 years now. Um, they serve a full um, continuum of care. We're an intergenerational community. Our president had heard about the need, heard, heard a speaker talk about the need in the Dallas area for youth aging out of foster care. So when they turn 18, they are um, released from foster care, released from the state being their parents, and sent to the street if they don't have anywhere else to go, which many of them don't. The Ebby House is a home in East Dallas that is set up to sleep up to 16 young women um, ages 18 to 24 as they've aged out of foster care. Um, we are there to offer support in life. We're there to do life with these young women, help them in their next step to education, learn the life skills that it takes to be independent. All those things that we need to know to live independently is what we're going to work on in their 12 to 24 months stay at the Ebby House. Several of the girls who've participated in our program have all been homeless at some point. 
They come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different stories, but they've all come from CPS. They aged out at age 18. Foster care was really hard for me because uh, I had to depend on people that I didn't know. And I was forced to depend on those people. And it's scary being 18 years old and alone in Dallas. I was homeless for two months. They come in and there is an innate desire to be accepted by a biological mom, biological dad, no matter how broken um, they are. You're becoming a young lady and that's the most, I think, when you need your mother and you don't have that. The girls have shared that what makes the Ebby house different is the unconditional love. The idea that we're gonna be there no matter what. What I found in the Abbey House with Lisa and Kristen is that they came with open arms, you know. There were people there for you that wanted to care for you and wanted to help you. I definitely feel more security than I have before. Some of the things that they've mentioned that they now are appreciative of the Ebby House are they've mentioned that we have unconditional love, that we do not judge them. They now have support from the house manager and myself. Now they don't have to worry about a roof over their head. They don't have to worry about where they're sleeping that night. And they've all expressed how nice it feels to not have to worry about what they're going to eat that day. Basic needs are met. Having a roof over your head, um, being promised that you're going to have food, having a bed to sleep in, clean clothes. The girls have now bonded. They've bonded with each other, and they bonded with Lisa and I. We're, we go shopping, and we hang out together. They act like sisters. They argue like sisters. They tease like sisters. Um, it's a good feeling to watch them. I haven't laughed in a long time and I feel like when I'm here I tend to laugh a lot. There's much laughter at the Ebby house and I think that's probably one of my favorite things right now is to hear these girls who've been through so much but to hear them laugh it's priceless. Faith has looked different to each of our residents. Um, I'm working through the different aspects of how to integrate that faith without um, shoving it down people's throat. Obviously um, I'm different. They see that I'm different, and they know that I have something different. One of my residents grew up going to church with one of her foster families, and actually several of her foster families, but now she's struggling with, where is God? Why would God let me be in foster care for almost 18 years? And I've had to look at her and say, I don't know. I don't know why, but that's what faith's about. When we don't know, and we still believe. I love getting to go down to, to Ebby House and see that ministry uh, and see what Kristen and others are doing there. Um, but there's a lot of need. Uh, there are 17 million orphans worldwide, and that can be overwhelming when we think about it that way. But to hear Mariella's story and to think that every one of those 17 million has a story, right? And that God wants to draw up Esther's in our time and our age if we had vision to see it. That's, that's what this is all about. So Kristen... 
could you talk a little bit about the need, not just 17 million, but in, in, in North Texas, some of the things you've learned too as you've been a part of this so far? Sure. Um, 17 million is a big number, so I'm going to bring it back down to Texas and then to Collin County. So in Texas, we have 28,883 children in foster care. 170 of that 28,000 are here in Collin County. The state of Texas has 10,768 kids in the state who are waiting for their forever families. These are the children that are um, available to be adopted, waiting to be adopted. Of that 10,700, we have 70 in Collin County. Texas has approximately 1,500 youth who age out of foster care. So they turn 18 um, with the state being their parents. Um, here in our region, we have approximately two to 300 each year age out um, of care. Um, in Collin County, 75% of our kids in foster care are placed outside of Collin County. So you may say, why is that important? Why? That's important because these are our kids. These are the kids in Collin County who are taken into care because of abuse, neglect. Then they're put into foster care. So we've got trauma of abuse. Then we have trauma of being moved. Then we have trauma of moving them out of the life, the city, the town that they know. And then we're going to put them in a new school. As a community, we're not doing our kids any favors right now. So, I mean, still we're talking big numbers, but it comes down to what can we do. And I know there are some this morning that may feel touched about this. Maybe it is about adoption or foster care, or maybe it's helping an organization. And we've heard recently about the second story. So, Matt, you want to talk to what you found out about that organization, how we might partner with them, what might be next steps? Absolutely. About a month or so ago, Kristen and I went to an event uh, called The Second Story, and it's a ministry. It's a collaborative effort of churches in Collin County who have said, you know what, uh, we need to do something about this. H- here's the reality, church. This isn't the government's problem, and this isn't CPS's issue, and this isn't local uh, uh, political officials' agenda items. This is the church's thing, because God has called us to respond to those who are in need. And James specifically tells us what we are to do. And so to me, I, I, what I love about this ministry is this is churches coming together and saying, we're, we need to be what God's called us to be as the church. We need to respond to help those who are in need. And so the second story ministry is about helping these kids have a second chapter to continue their story being told. Their story should not be defined by the unfortunate neglect and abuse an abandonment that they have experienced in their life, for most of them, of nothing that they have ever done to deserve it. But they deserve the second story that we all do and desire. And so the second story ministry is something that I have helped Greenville Oaks become involved with. And I want us as a church to stand up and say, we're going to be one of the churches in Collin County who's going to do something about this, that we're not going to talk about it. We're not just going to stand by and watch this happen, but we're going to stand up and do something about it. I mentioned we have 70 kids in Collin County who are waiting for their forever families. We have 80 evangelical churches in Collin County. It seems to me that's an easy answer right there. If the churches came together and stepped up, our kids would have homes. Um, If there's several ways we can help, and the second story is one of them. Um, As always, the CPS, other child placing agency, are always looking for foster parents. If that's on your heart, um, come see me. Come talk to me. I'll put you in some good hands. Um, 
There's also a need for respite care. Our foster families um, oftentimes could use a small break over a weekend, over um, sometimes they have to take business trips and um, there's, they need a place for the kids to go for a short-term stay. Um, respite care is another way to step up and help. All of our nonprofit agencies, um, they happen because of volunteers. The second story, the Ebby House, CASA, the Children's Advocacy Center, um, those are run by volunteers. Jump in. Um, I, I know they'd be happy to put you to work. And if that that's not your strength, then the financial support is always welcome. Um, the Ebby House, CASA, again, Children's Advocacy Center, again, um, Hope's Door, I can name on and on and on. They need your financial back backbone. Otherwise, the work can't happen. I wanted to draw attention to this because this is what one of our own members is doing. And I wanted you to know about that. It's a great work that's just getting off the ground in so many ways. I'm, I'm grateful to see Kristen. But I want to also say many of you have taken a part in this already. I mean, many of you have become foster parents or you've become adoptive parents. And we don't say enough how important that role is and the great blessing that is to this church. So we want to honor you for that. In fact, I want to spend a moment to pray for Kristen and Ebby House, uh, for all of you who've taken that on at some point in your life. And I'm hearing stories this week of many of you that I had no idea about that, that many of us are finding out about. And so we want to just say thank you. And it's not because you've done something that's out of the ordinary or this is a duty. It's because God's placed something on your heart. Some of us are not called to this at all. And that's okay. This is not about guilting anyone to do anything, but I know God's touching some of your hearts, maybe even this morning. And if you want to know more about this, there's information in the Faith at Home Center, and Matt and Kristen will be there after service uh, to talk with any of you that'd like to know more about how you can engage this. So let's pray about this right now, uh, and, and we'll close our service on this. God, we thank you so much for the story of Esther. And it's a reminder, God, that you use people that sometimes we forget. And yet, God, that's, those are the very people, and that's what we've seen all through this series, is it's through brokenness and hurts that you, you use those things and you form us for the sake of your kingdom. I pray for Ebby House and for Kristen's leadership, God, that you would, you would bring so much success to what they're doing. That's not about numbers or finances. That's about human lives that are, are, are getting a great blessing, God. Help us to know how we can partner with that. And for those who've chosen to adopt and be foster parents and find ways to care for kids that are not our own, God, I want to I just pray blessings over that. And I want to thank you for the faithfulness of the church that stepped up over the generations. This is not about uh, anything that we're asking the political sphere to do, God. It's about what the church is called to do, pure and faultless religion that you honor. So God, help us to know how to do this and to step through these doors. And I thank you for everyone that is stepping into this and doing something about it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. May we love God, may we love people, and may we serve others this week. Go in peace today.